The Thames Tunnel, an 11 metre wide, 6 metre high and 396 metre long tunnel cuts some 23 metres under the River Thames when measured at high tide. It is the first known tunnel to be excavated under a navigable river and most crucially for today's episode, it was the first use of a tunnelling shield, which some 200 years after its original inception is today one of the most impressive achievements of engineering. Hello and welcome to the Tunnelling Podcast. I'm John Young. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we are going to explore the lives of the men behind the shield. The two men who first painted an idea that would be gradually built upon, revised, honed and improved to become the modern tunnel boring machine. One of those men you'd be most familiar with as the father of Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Mark Brunel was an engineer for the Thames Tunnel and worked with his son Isambard to build the project. The second man who painted the tunnel shield alongside Mark Brunel was 10th Earl of Dundonald and head of the Chilean Navy. A battle-hardy ship's captain and an expelled member of parliament, he is nicknamed the Wolf of the Sea by Napoleon and the Metallic Lord by the Spanish. He himself went by the name Lord Cochrane. Sir Thomas John Cochrane, born 1789, the son of an admiral, Sir Alexander Inglis Cochrane. He was a battle-hungry naval officer of the Napoleonic Wars. At a young age, he rose to high position in the Navy thanks to the outrageous nepotism of his father. And just a few months after his 17th birthday, he captained his first ship, the Jason. After a spell in North America, he was in 1798 posted to the HMS Barfleur, where we see the first glimpses of his character. Here he was court-martialed for showing disrespect to the ship's first lieutenant. The board reprimanded him for flippancy. This was the first public manifestation of a pattern of Cochrane being unable to get along with many of his superiors, his subordinates, his employers and his colleagues in several navies and in Parliament. In February 1800, Cochrane commanded the prize crew taking a captured French vessel to the British base in Spain. The ship was almost lost in a storm, with Cochrane and his brother Archibald taking the place of the crew who were mostly ill. As a result of his heroism, Cochrane was promoted to commander and took command of the brig sloop HMS Speedy on the 28th of March 1800. Later that year, a Spanish warship disguised as a merchant ship almost captured him. He escaped by flying a Danish flag and fending off a boarding by claiming that his ship was plague-ridden. On another occasion, he was being chased by an enemy frigate and knew that it would follow him in the night by any glimmer of light from Speedy, so he placed a lantern on a barrel and let it float away. The enemy frigate followed the light and Speedy escaped. In February of 1801, at Malta, Cochrane got into an argument with a French royalist officer at a fancy dress ball. He had come dressed as a common sailor and the royalist mistook him for one. This argument led to Cochrane's only duel. Cochrane wounded the French officer with a pistol, but himself was unharmed. One of his most notable exploits was the capture of the Spanish frigate El Gamo on the 6th of May 1801. El Gamo carried 32 guns and 319 men, compared with Speedy's 14 guns and 54 men. 
Cochrane flew an American flag and approached so closely to El Gamo that her guns could not depress to fire on Speedy's hull. The Spanish tried to board and take over the ship, but whenever they were about to board, Cochrane would pull away briefly and fired on the concentrated boarding parties with his ship's guns. Eventually, Cochrane himself boarded the El Gamo and captured her, despite being outnumbered six to one. In Speedy's 13-month cruise, Cochrane captured, burned or drove ashore 53 ships before three French ships captured him on 3rd of July 1801. A few days later, he was exchanged for the second captain of another French ship. In June 1806, whilst commander of the HMS Palace, Lord Cochrane stood for the House of Commons for the Potwalloper Borough of Honiton in Devon. This was exactly the kind of borough which Cochrane proposed to abolish. Votes were mostly sold to the highest bidder. Cochrane offered nothing and lost the election. In October 1806, he ran for Parliament in Honiton and won. Cochrane initially denied that he paid any bribes, but he revealed in a parliamentary debate ten years later that he had paid ten guineas, ten pounds and ten shillings per voter. In May of 1807, Cochrane was elected by Westminster in a more democratic election. He had campaigned for parliamentary reform, allied with such radicals as William Cobbett, Sir Francis Burder and Henry Hunt. His outspoken criticism of the conduct of war and the corruption of the navy made him powerful enemies in government. In 1810, Sir Francis Burdett, a member of parliament and political ally, had barricaded himself in his home in Piccadilly, London, resisting arrest by the House of Commons. Cochrane went to assist Burdett's defence of the House. His approach was similar to what he had used in the navy and would have led to numerous deaths amongst the arresting officers and at least partial destruction of Burdett's house, along with much of Piccadilly. On realising what Cochrane planned, Burdett and his allies took steps to end the siege. Cochrane was popular with the public, but was unable to get along with his colleagues in the House of Commons or within government. He usually had little success in promoting his causes. In February 1814, rumours began to circulate of Napoleon's death. The claims were seemingly confirmed by a man in a Red Staff officer's uniform identified as Colonel de Bourges, aide-de-camp to the British ambassador to Russia. He arrived in Dover from France on the 21st of February, bearing news that Napoleon had been captured and killed by Cossacks. Share prices rose sharply on the stock exchange in reaction to the news and the possibility of peace particularly in the volatile government stock called Omnium, which increased from 26.5 to 32. However, it soon became clear that the news of Napoleon's death was a hoax. The stock exchange established a subcommittee to investigate, and they discovered that six men had sold substantial amounts of Omnium stock during the boom in value. The committee assumed that all six were responsible for the hoax and subsequent fraud. Cochrane had disposed of his entire £139,000 holding in Omnium, equivalent to £10 million in 2020, which he had only acquired a month before, and was named as one of the six conspirators, as were his uncle Andrew Cochrane Johnston and his broker Richard Butt. Within days, an anonymous informant told the committee that Colonel de Bourg had an imposter. He was a Prussian aristocrat named Charles Random de Beringer. He had also been seen entering Cochrane's house on the day of the hoax. The question of Cochrane's innocence or guilt 
created much debate at the time and has divided historians ever since. His conviction in the Great Stock Exchange fraud of 1814 resulted in Parliament expelling him on the 5th of July 1814. However, his constituents in the seat of Westminster re-elected him at the resulting by-election on the 16th of July. He held this seat until 1818. In 1818, Cochrane's last speech in Parliament advocated parliamentary reform. Also in 1818, Cochrane would submit a patent with Mark Brunel for the Tunnelling Shield. It would be his fourth patent, but the first that was not naval related. He was a keen promoter of the steam engine and would submit a subsequent tunnelling patent in 1830 for a solution to tunnelling under compressed air. Mark Isambard Brunel would have at one time been the mortal enemy of Lord Cochrane. Born the second son of a prosperous farmer in Normandy, it was customary to enter the priesthood. His father therefore sent Mark on a classical education, but he showed no liking for Greek or Latin and instead showed himself proficient in drawing and mathematics. At the age of 11, he was sent to a seminary in Rouen. The superior of the seminary allowed him to learn carpentry, and he soon achieved the standards of a cabinet maker. He also sketched ships in the local harbour. As he showed no desire to become a priest, his father sent him to be tutored by a family friend on naval matters. In 1786, as a result of his tuition, Mark became a naval cadet on a French frigate and during his service visited the West Indies several times. In 1789, during Brunel's service abroad, the French Revolution began. Three years later, Brunel's frigate paid off its crew and Brunel returned home. He was a royalist sympathiser, as were most of the inhabitants of Normandy. In January 1793, whilst visiting Paris during the trials of Louis XVI, Brunel unwisely publicly predicted the demise of Robespierre, one of the leaders of the revolution. He was lucky to get out of Paris with his life and returned home to Rouen. However, it was evident that he would need to leave France. During his stay in Rouen, Brunel had met Sophia Kingdom, a young English woman who was an orphan and working as a governess. He was forced to leave her behind when he fled to Le Havre and boarded the American ship Liberty, bound for New York. Brunel arrived in New York on the 6th of September 1793 and he subsequently travelled to Philadelphia and Albany. He got involved in a scheme to link the Hudson River by canal with Lake Champlain and also submitted a design for the new Capitol building to be built in Washington. The judges were very impressed with his design, but it was not selected. In 1796, after taking American citizenship, Brunel was appointed chief engineer of the city of New York. He designed various houses, docks, commercial buildings, an arsenal and a cannon factory. In 1798, during a dinner conversation, Brunel learnt of the difficulties that the Royal Navy had in obtaining the 100,000 pulley blocks it needed each year. Each of these was made by hand. Brunel quickly produced an outline design of a set of machines that would automate their production. He decided to sail to England and put his invention before the Admiralty. Whilst Brunel had been in the United States, Sophia Kingdom had remained in Rouen, and during the Reign of Terror, she was arrested as an English spy and daily expected to be executed. She was only saved by the fall of Robespierre in June 1794. In April 1795, Kingdom was able to leave France and travel to London. When Brunel arrived from the United States, he immediately travelled to London and made contact with Kingdom. 
They were married on the 1st of November, 1799. In 1801, she gave birth to their first child, a daughter, Sophia. In 1804, their second daughter, Emma. And in 1806, their son, Isambard Kingdom. During the summer of 1799, Brunel was introduced to Henry Maudsley, a talented engineer who had recently started his own business. Maudsley made working models of the machines for making pulley blocks. In 1802, Brunel's block-making machinery was installed at the Portsmouth Block Mills. Brunel's machines could be operated by unskilled workers at 10 times the previous rate of production. Altogether, 45 machines were installed at Portsmouth, and by 1808, the plant was producing 130,000 blocks a year. Brunel was a talented mechanical engineer and did much to develop sawmill machinery. He also developed machinery for mass-producing soldiers' boots. But before this could reach full production, demand ceased due to the end of the Napoleonic Wars. In 1805, the Thames Archway Company was formed with the intention of driving a tunnel beneath the Thames between Rotherhide and Limehouse. Richard Trevithick was engaged by the company to construct the tunnel. He used Cornish miners to work on the tunnel. Two years later, the tunnel encountered quicksand and conditions became difficult and dangerous. Eventually, the tunnel was abandoned after more than a thousand feet had been completed and expert opinion was that such a tunnel was impracticable. Brunel had already drawn up plans for a tunnel under the River Neva in Russia, but this scheme never came to fruition. In 1818, Brunel and Cochrane had patented the tunnelling shield. This was a reinforced shield of cast iron in which miners would work in separate compartments, digging at the tunnel face. Periodically, the shield would be driven forward by large jacks and the tunnel surface behind it would be lined with brick. It is claimed that Brunel found the inspiration for the tunnelling shield from a shipworm, which has its head protected by a hard shell whilst it bores through the ship's timbers. Brunel was so convinced that he could use the tunnelling shield to dig the tunnel under the Thames that he wrote to every person of influence who might be interested. At last, in February 1824, a meeting was held and 2,128 shares sold at £50 each. In June 1824, the Thames Tunnel Company was incorporated by Royal Ascent. The tunnel was intended for horse-drawn traffic. Brunel several times became involved in unprofitable projects. As a consequence, by the beginning of 1821, he was deep in debt, and in May of that year, he was tried and committed to the King's Bench Prison, a debtor's prison in Southwark. Prisoners in a debtor's prison were allowed to have their family with them, and Sophia accompanied him. Brunel spent 88 days incarcerated. As time passed, with no prospect of gaining release, Brunel began to correspond with Alexander I of Russia about the possibility of moving his family to St. Petersburg to work for the Tsar. As soon as it was learnt that Britain was likely to lose such an eminent engineer as Brunel, influential figures such as the Duke of Wellington began to press the government for intervention. The government granted £5,000 to clear Brunel's debts on condition that he abandoned any plans to go to Russia. As a result, Brunel was released from prison in August. Work began on the tunnel in February 1825 by sinking a 15-metre diameter vertical shaft on the Rotherhide Bank. This was done by constructing a 15-foot diameter metal ring upon which a circular brick tower was built. 
As the tower rose in height, its weight forced the ring into the ground, and at the same time, workmen excavated the earth in the centre of the ring. The vertical shaft was completed in November 1825, and the tunnelling shield, which had been manufactured at Lambeth by Henry Maudsley's company, was then assembled at the bottom. Maudsley, who had worked with Brunel on the pulley blocks, also supplied the steam-powered pumps for the project. The shield was rectangular in cross-section and consisted of 12 frames, side by side, each of which could be moved forward independently of the others. Each frame contained three compartments, one above the other, each big enough for one man to excavate the tunnel face, and the whole frame accommodated 36 miners. When enough material had been removed from the tunnel face, the frame was moved forward by large jacks. As the shield moved forward, brick layers followed lining the walls. The tunnel required over 7.5 million bricks. Brunel was assisted in his work by his son, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, now 18 years old. Brunel had planned the tunnel to pass no more than 14 feet below the riverbed at the lowest point. This caused problems later. During the tunnelling, both Brunel and his assistant engineer suffered ill health, and for a while Isambard had to bear the whole burden of the work. There were several instances of flooding at the tunnel face due to the nearness to the bed of the river, and in May 1827, it was necessary to plug an enormous hole that appeared on the riverbed. Finally, the resources of the Thames Tunnel Company were consumed, and despite efforts to raise more money, the tunnel was sealed up in August 1828. Brunel resigned from his position, frustrated by the continued opposition from the chairman. He undertook various civil engineering projects, including helping his son Isambard with his design of the Clifton Suspension Bridge. In March 1832, William Smith was deposed as chairman of the Thames Tunnel Company. He had been a thorn in Brunel's side throughout the project. In 1834, the government agreed a loan of £246,000 to the Thames Tunnel Company. The old 80-ton tunnelling shield was removed and replaced by a new improved 140-ton shield consisting of 9,000 parts that had to be fitted together underground. Tunnelling was resumed, but there were still instances of flooding in which the pumps were overwhelmed. Miners were affected by the constant influx of polluted water and many fell ill. As the tunnel approached the Wapping shore, work began on sinking a vertical shaft similar to the Rotherhithe one. This began in 1840 and took 13 months to complete. On the 24th of March 1841, Brunel was knighted by the young Queen Victoria. This was at the suggestion of Prince Albert, who had shown a keen interest in the progress of the tunnel. The tunnel opened on the Wapping side of the river on the 1st of August 1842. On the 7th of November 1842, Brunel suffered a stroke that paralysed his right side for a time. The Thames Tunnel finally officially opened on the 25th of March 1843, and Brunel, despite ill health, took part in the opening ceremony. Within 15 weeks of opening, a million people visited the tunnel. On the 26th of July 1843, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert visited. Although intended for horse-drawn traffic, the tunnel remained pedestrian only. In 1865, the East London Railway Company purchased the Thames Tunnel for £200,000 and four years later, the first trains passed through it. Subsequently, the tunnel became part of the London Underground System and remains in use today as part of the East London line of London Overground. The engine house at Rotherhithe was taken over by a charitable trust in 1975 and transformed into the Brunel Museum in 2006. 
After the completion of the Thames Tunnel, his greatest achievement, Brunel was in poor health. He never again accepted major commissions, although he did help his son Isambard on various projects. He was proud of his son's achievements and was present at the launch of the SS Great Britain in Bristol on the 19th of July 1843. In 1845, Brunel suffered another, more severe stroke and was almost totally paralysed on his right side. On the 12th of December 1849, Brunel died at the age of 80 and his remains were interred at Kensal Green Cemetery in London. His wife, Sophia, was subsequently interned in the same plot, followed by their son, Isambard, just 10 years later. Lord Dundonald, or Lord Cochrane as he was known, was interred in Westminster Abbey in the floor of the nave directly before the choir. His epitaph, written by Sir Lion Playfair, reads, Here rests in his 85th year Thomas Cochrane, 10th Earl of Dundonald of Paisley and of Ockletree in the peerage of Scotland, Marquess of Maranham, in the Empire of Brazil, GCB, and the Admiral of the Fleet who by his confidence and genius, his science and extraordinary daring, inspired by his heroic exertion in the cause of freedom and his splendid services alike to his own country, Greece, Brazil, Chile and Peru, achieved a name illustrious throughout the world for courage, patriotism and chivalry. Born December 14, 1775, died October 31, 1860. The Tunnelling Podcast is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, John Young, and co-hosted by Rian Owen. Script supervision from Alex Conacher, sound engineering from Ross McPherson, series supervision from Martin Noack of the British Tunnelling Society, and our executive producer is Rory Harris. Thank you.